Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. As it was in our discussion on Tuesday that the Lord began to spark some things in my heart in regards to the trajectory of where we're going to be going in terms of teaching on a Sunday morning. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> I'm actually titling this message. This is a, this is, this is a big step for me. Uh, Adam is always asking me, well, what do you want me to put on the podcast? What am I supposed to put on the website? Uh, I need like a title for the message. So he comes up with something uh, that's ultra creative uh, and puts it on the website with like a description of uh, titles for my messages. But I, I actually have a title for this whole series. So I really need like a gold star. Can you guys do that for me? Like, can you, can you affirm me in this? Uh, <laughs> and it's, a, it's, actually a, it's actually a sermon series that has been in the works for five or six years. It actually started a number of years ago where I was talking with Adam and uh, we were in a staff meeting with Pastor Daniel and Drew was there for you guys that remember him. And uh, we started having this kind of discussion on uh, half-truths and heresies <laughs> and wanting to maybe do a, a teaching exposing uh, just kind of misconceptions about God and just false doctrine in general. And uh, as we were studying Jeremiah chapter 5 on, uh, on a Tuesday night, leaving that gathering and going home that evening, I just felt the Holy Spirit start to revisit some of those things from a multitude of years ago where we never actually preached that sermon series. We never fleshed it out. Um, and then Adam and I had the privilege of going on a little road trip and uh, kind of discussing some of these things. Uh, he fell asleep, but I was able to have this discussion with myself eventually, and I'm excited to go down this road. It's going to be a fun one, guys. And uh, I say that, uh, I also know that it's not going to be an easy one. It'll be somewhat difficult but I want to I kind of lay the framework, and if I could give you an introduction to where we're going today. I'm not going to just expose every heresy known to man or all the false doctrines that are running rampant in the church and kind of dismantle them one by one. That's not necessarily the heart behind this messaging this morning. And if today, if I could give you uh, an intro to what we're talking about, I'm talking about preaching the word, preaching the word of God. Um, and how it kind of fits into this idea of half-truths and heresies. And so I said we were in Jeremiah chapter 5 on Tuesday night, and this is where the Lord uh, began to stir this. And so I want to encourage you guys, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 say this. It says, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know, and seek in her open places, if you can find a man. If there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth... And I will pardon her, though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. This was a kind of profound accusation from the Lord that we read. This is the very beginning of chapter 5. And uh, it's this cry that's going out uh, from the Lord to search all over his people in Jerusalem to find someone who is earnestly seeking the truth. And the sad reality is that there are none found here. <laughs> And I think our culture is remarkably similar to that of Judah's. 
one in which truth is not sought after or highly esteemed. And my question there would be, why? Why is that the case? And I, I, I think I've come to this conclusion is that truth is not something we really want to come to terms with. Because the truth makes us uncomfortable. It forces us to come to terms with what's wrong with us. Um, right? You, you know, those, there's those sayings like, you can't handle the truth. And the reality is, a lot of people don't want to face the truth because when we face the truth, we have to come to terms with our own insufficiencies and inadequacies. Um, does anybody here have like a friend or a family member that just hates going to the doctor? Maybe you're that friend or family member that hates going to the doctor because you're terrified they're going to find something wrong with you. Or they're going to tell you uh, you have to change your diet or you're going to have to exercise these things that I'm being told that I have to do if I want to stay healthy, right? Because uh, we don't want to discover if there's actually something wrong with us. I, I realize that's kind, of a, that's kind of a real fear for some people. I'm not trying to make light of that. But uh, there's part of me that would rather not know if there's something wrong because then I don't have to change anything that I'm doing, Right? You guys tracking me with me here? Uh, the same is true for a lot of people when it comes to their spiritual health and their spiritual life. They fall into this mentality that where they don't want to be exposed to the truth because the truth will require something to change in their lives. And I think that that is one of the reasons why we are so, as, a, as, as human nature, we are so opposed to the confrontational nature of the truth because then we are required to change. Our excuses fade away, right? It's that, it's that cliche that ignorance is bliss, right? It's something that I think our culture really embraces. Um, anyway, <laughs> I'm thankful for a good physician found in Jesus Christ that doesn't pull punches <laughs> uh, based upon our condition, right? Right? He sees us as we actually are, and he's willing and he's ready to help bring about the change that is necessary. And uh, all of that is done while making a perfectly honest assessment of our condition, and that we're hopelessly in need of his help. And so my prayer is that we would be a people who love and seek the truth, even when it's not popular, even when it's not convenient, and even when it's not comfortable to what we want to hear. Does that make sense? I don't, I'm not interested in just being told that everything's okay if it, if it actually isn't. And so we, we, we're all probably pretty, um, pretty familiar with the, the idea of uh, truth in our society, um, that uh, truth is relative, right? Uh, it's, subjected, it's subjective to one's own experience. And we know that that eventually breaks down, right? Because uh, truth cannot be in opposition to itself. You guys have seen the, the bumper stickers that say coexist on them with like six different world religions on the back. And uh, a lot of, there's a lot of conversation and thought behind Jesus being a tolerant person. And, and uh, in fact, a lot of the conversations that I've had with people locally when doing evangelism is they love Jesus and they love his message about tolerance. And I don't, 
actually ever read that. <laughs> His message uh, necessarily about tolerance uh, in the scripture. And so um, I had a bumper sticker on a car a number of years ago um, that actually said contradict instead of coexist. And it asked this question, they can't all be true, can they? And that's, the, that's where we really come to, that's where, we, where truth really comes to a head because what happens if my truth says that your truth is a lie, who's true, whose truth ultimately kind of wins in that scenario? Whoever is loudest, like whoever can argue on Facebook with all caps, or, or how, how, does that, how does that come to terms? And we really boil down to the place that uh, truth is something that has to exist. There has to be a standard for it. And I believe as Christians, as men and women of God, we understand that we find and define our truth by what's in this book. Amen? And I want you to know that if you're a part of this church, if you attend Open Door Church, that we very much want to encompass the whole truth of this book uh, and the things that God has said without adding to it or subtracting from it. That is my personal conviction as a pastor. That's the leadership of this church. And we want to look to this book to find out what it actually says, what God has actually spoken, and not just fall for the comfortable uh, lie that everything is okay with what's going on in our lives. Does that make sense? And so with that, as we start on this series, as we kind of dig into what the scripture says about confrontational issues, we want to, I wanted to set this up as kind of the platform uh, for us to go down this road, is that we're going to look at this as the source, first and foremost. Yes, maybe we'll share personal experience. Yes, maybe there might be anecdotal, anecdotal stories. Wow, I can speak English. Uh, stories. Yes, there may be uh, maybe some, some things that we bring into services and sermons to help, uh, help explain a point or something like that. But at the very crux and basis of what we believe, we find it here in this book. And the sad reality is a lot of Christian, I'm using, if you're listening to the podcast, I'm using those like uh, air quotes with my fingers. Uh, Christian ministries have departed from this being the sole basis of truth. Um, and it's sad and it's scary. And a lot of the times for the average person, when we're listening to some of the things that people have to say, it can sound good. It can sound right. It can sound spiritual. And a lot of us may not even know how far from this truth it has diverted. And so that's the heartbeat of a pastor here this morning as we're talking about where we're going with this teaching series. Um, I've got notes and stuff. I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to stick to them because uh, there's this there's this tension that exists with speaking the truth in love, right? The instruction that that we have to fulfill from Scripture is that we would present the truth in love, right? Um, and a lot of the times. Uh, people would consider us sharing the truth as unloving because we don't affirm a practice or we don't affirm a person or we don't affirm somebody being wrong. It's equated with the fact that we actually don't love them or that we don't care. And that is a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a terrible thing. <laughs> 
That's a sad reality of the state and the culture that we live in because uh, I have to tell my son he's wrong all the time. (laughs) Right? I have to bring correction into his life. And it's not because I don't love him, but it's because I don't want him to get hit by a car. I don't want him to die. (laughs) I don't want him to experience pain. I don't want to experience suffering. And I, I think one of the things that's hard for our culture to come to terms with is that uh, affirmation and uh, affirmation and love are not the same thing, right? Because I can love you and not affirm everything that's going on in your life. I can love uh, I can love you, but that doesn't mean I have to approve of every decision that you make. Anybody that's a parent in here knows that that's the case. You love your children. Without, without restriction, but that doesn't mean you approve of everything that they do. In fact, love looks at a situation, love looks at what's wrong, and says, I love you enough to not let you stay that way. I love you enough to not let this continue to bring you to a place of destruction or pain or suffering, right? And we have these misdefinitions. That's not in my notes here, and that's actually going to be part of next week's sermon. But <laughs> we just simply have a, we have a culture that is confused by truth. And I think, uh, I, think the, I think as well as when I say culture, I'm including the church in that as well. We have a, a good majority of believers, and I, I, I purpose, I purpose, purpose, there we go, purposefully left a lot of the statistics that I was reading out of this morning's uh, message here because they were overwhelming and not necessarily here, but reading, reading polls that have been taken of born-again believers, self-identified born-again, born-again believers, uh, it's startling. And I'm, I'm trying to save this so I have some content for next week, but the reality is, is that uh, we are a people in, in, in at least at the church in America, that is widely given to heresy, <laughs> widely given to believing things about God that are not true and believing things about the scripture that aren't there. And I think it's important that we begin to uncover these. You see, um, in Jeremiah, it's God's own people who refuse to seek the truth. They're more comfortable with lies because the truth would expose them and then they would have to give an account for their action. I think this is important to note because we're not just talking about a pagan society here. We're not just talking about, uh, we're not talking about a godless culture when we're reading Jeremiah. And that's why I want to make that distinction. I'm not, when I'm talking about culture, I'm not just talking about those that are anti-Jesus. I'm talking about those that are in the church. I'm talking about those that have professed to be believers and followers of Jesus. I'm talking about people within this congregation that I've had, uh, I've had conversation with. Um, they say, verse, verse 2 here in uh, Jeremiah chapter 5, the response of the people uh, was this, though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. These were a religious people that had religious rhetoric and language. They knew the right things to say. They knew how to say, as the Lord lives, yet the, the, the accusation from the Lord was that they were lying, that they were swearing falsely. It's uh, reminding me of what I read in 2 Timothy, and we're going to spend a lot of time in 2 Timothy, but um, what, I, what I sense there is that they were saying one thing, but their actions exposed it as a lie. 
Paul would reference this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, as having a form of godliness but denying its power. Right? You can have the language, but you lack the follow-through. This is something that is uh, abundantly clear to be a problem that uh, I'm hoping that by the end of our kind of time together that we can expose. But if you continue on through Jeremiah chapter 5, uh, we kind of come to the ending here. I'm just hitting very briefly on the, on the beginning and the end because this is where the Lord was stirring me. This is all still the introduction to the introduction. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm really not that sorry, but that's just my personality to apologize. Uh, anyway, beginning in verse 30, it says, An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. And my people, hear this, my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? You see, a disastrous, or as, as uh, the Lord would describe it here, an astonishing and horrible thing was taking place in Jerusalem. Those who claimed to speak for God were lying. Right? They had all the, the prophets here were actually telling lies to the people. They were saying, God's not going to do this when God was actually saying, I am going to do this. He's talking about uh, handing them over to Babylon and all that fun stuff. But they were, they, were, they, were, they were prophesying that everything was going to be okay when it wasn't. And then we go on and we see here the priests rule by their own power. Um, and my people love to have it so. They had the right language and charisma. They were saying things, that, but they were saying things that were contrary to what the Lord was actually speaking. And those who were to rule and lead the people were operating in their own wisdom and strength rather than in the leadership of the Lord. And as I was reading this, as I was studying this, I, I was convicted um, by how remarkably similar the people of Jerusalem were here in Jeremiah chapter 5 with a lot of what we're currently experiencing in the modern church movement. We're seeing, we're seeing men and women of God abuse their positions. We see false teachers run rampant. We see, uh, we see massive ministries kind of implode on themselves because man has been behind it and leading it. And when he's removed and not in the equation anymore, they come and they crumble and they fall. And all we need is, what, like four or five or six more documentaries of different ministries uh, <laughs> throughout the globe uh, happening this way. Maybe then we'll kind of pick up that that was never God's intent for the local church or for its leadership. I, I don't know, but it's clear that there's a problem. And I'm not here writing off everything or mega ministries or anything like that. I, I'm not, that's, that's not what, I don't have like some beef with mega churches or something. Well, I do have some beef with mega churches, but not, not all of them. So hear me out here. <laughs> That the reality is there were preachers that were saying things that God had never said. There were prophets that were pretending to speak on behalf of the Lord. And I, I'm convinced, friends, there's a lot of preaching. I, I listen to a lot of things on YouTube and, and a lot of different pastors and, and trying to follow what you know, people are saying and what I have friends doing, different churches and whatnot. And there's a lot of pastors out there that are not preaching the word of God. You know, it boils down to like an inspirational TED Talk or, you know, some kind of, 
you know, self-help thing. And, I, and I, I'm sad to say this, but I, I've been there. You know, Kelly and I went on vacation and we sat in a church where scripture was hardly mentioned. You know, and it, it was one of those things that was grieving to me as a pastor. <laughs> and, you know, that's kind of the mild side. <laughs> where, you know, they're just not focusing on spiritual things or they're not focusing on scripture. And then on the other side, we've got just flat out blasphemy and false teaching and heresy that's being preached and scripture that's being perverted. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's everywhere, obviously, but it's, it's there. It's on platforms like TikTok, I, which I just figured out like this last week what it was. I didn't really, uh, anyway. <laughs> But there, there's platforms out there where there are influential voices that are pretending to be spiritual that are very, very wrong. <laughs> in the very least, in, the, in an easy way of saying that. We've got men and women leading churches. And they're not relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. They're relying on business sense and personality. And we see them implode and we see things happen that are sad and devastating and it paints a bad picture of the church at large in a lot of people's minds and experience so and I, I correlated those to the prophets and to the priests there but I think the greatest travesty in those verses verse 31 was not found in what the prophets and the priests did wrong and there's no there's no description, there, there's no way to kind of sidestep that those were awful, horrible things. They were people that should know better and they were doing them anyway. But it was that the people loved to have it so. You see, friends, I believe the people of God, those that follow Jesus, I believe there's a great responsibility to not give a platform for people to abuse the gospel. I believe that there is a responsibility amongst the people of God not to continue to allow people to remain in a position of power or a position of influence when it's in direct Direct rebellion towards God. I wrote, it, I wrote it this way. It's the people of God who have enabled the abuse to happen. They're more comfortable with a message that requires little from them. And they love their sin more than the truth that could set them free. I, I often share the story of the demoniac there in Mark chapter 5. It's one of my favorite. Jesus cast the demons out of the man. He was... Uh, cutting himself with stones, right? He was naked and uh, Jesus shows up on the scene and has one powerful encounter with him. And he's like sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. He's a transformative encounter. One of my favorite like descriptions of the gospel there in Mark chapter five. But it says that the people from the garrison show up on the scene and they beg Jesus to leave. Like I, and I can't wrap my mind around this one. They had a real issue. They had this guy that they couldn't do anything about he was causing all kinds of trouble. They couldn't bind him with chains. Uh, like he was messed up. And, they, and, and Jesus comes up and fixes their problem, right? He, he, he does something miraculous here. 
certified, bona fide miracle. The kid's like clothed in his right mind, sitting at Jesus. And instead of saying, Jesus, what you did for him, could you come do it for my neighbor? Or could you do it in my life? Uh, no. <laughs> they beg Jesus to leave because they're terrified. It says that they were actually filled with fear and they asked Jesus to leave and begged him to depart. And that's crazy. And I, I think about it this way is that because the majority of human beings are more comfortable in their captivity, more comfortable in their sin than they are willing to go through the process of being set free. Because having that man in his ministry about took away every excuse on why they were living in compromise and sin. And the reality of it was, was Jesus was present. There was demonstration that there was power available for something to change in their lives. Right? Every excuse was taken away for, for their complacency and their sin when the guy with 2,000 demons just got saved, Right? <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, my drinking problem just isn't as, you know, oh no, Jesus can't do anything about that. But no, I like that, and I don't want to give that up. Does that make sense? Are you guys tracking with me? I don't know if that's uh, even kind of somewhat uh, connecting there with you guys, but I see this, I see the great travesty in what we're reading there in Jeremiah chapter 5, is yes, the, the prophets and the priests are doing terrible things. They're leading the people astray, but God's people, the one that he has covenant relationship with, they were enjoying it. They loved to have it that way. They didn't want the truth because they were comfortable living in rebellion towards God. They wanted somebody to pacify their, their, their conviction, and they wanted their conscience seared, right? Because they didn't want to actually change. And so they were comfortable with having the people in charge that were going to pat them on the back and say, you know what, sin's not a big deal. It's just a mistake. We all make them. God still loves you, and he's not going to ever do anything about it. Well, we know that that's not the case. So turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Friends, these are the last words recorded by Paul the Apostle. He's writing them to his spiritual son, Timothy, while he's in prison. He is about to die for his faith. He writes, these shortly before, he writes these words shortly before his execution. He says this in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their eyes away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of the evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Verse 1 here kind of serves as a preamble of sorts to the charge and the rest of the verses here. It says, he begins this with saying, I charge you. Right, this is Paul writing to Timothy. I charge you. This is strong language. The Greek word here is diamartoma. And it has this legal connection to it that means to testify under oath, as in a court of law. It's not something that's just being saying lightly or passively. 
uh, Paul, is, Paul is saying, like, I charge you under oath, <laughs> and not just under that, but before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying this not before Paul, because Paul's about to die, right? He knows he's on his way out. He's, his next little segment in 2 Timothy chapter 4 is about how he's fought the good fight, and, you know, I'm checking out. Come see me before I die. Bring some parchment. <laughs> like that, that's really how it continues then. But it says, uh, but before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, you see this charge holds weight, not because Paul would be disappointed if his boy Timothy didn't do it. There's real stakes. There's real consequence here if Timothy fails in this uh, charge that he's given. It says here, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Paul is convinced as he's writing to Timothy that God is really coming back, that Jesus is coming back for his bride. He's coming back for his people, that he's going to love or he's going to judge the living and the dead. He's coming back as the rightful judge. Why this charge is pretty solemn. This is not something that is just kind of to be taken casually. <laughs> I think about that and just kind of the introduction to what Paul's about to say. Thinking about how heavy of wordage is used there. Yet how casually so many ministers, myself maybe even being included in that lot have taken the charge to preach the word so, so casually. It's a terrifying thing, if I'm being honest. Because the charge is this, to preach the word. Not man's opinion, not some funny story, it's not to entertain, it's not to get you laughing, it's not to get people to show up and come back. God knows that I don't know how to do that. <laughs> the charge given to Timothy here is that he would preach the word. I remember um, Pastor Daniel and I, we went to school together. I keep referencing Pastor Daniel, and many of you probably have no idea who I'm talking about because he hasn't been here for a number of years. But he was a, a great dear friend of mine. We went to ministry school together and when I came back to start dating Kelly, she lived in Pueblo, and I would go back uh, to Pueblo to try to woo her and grab her attention quite often, like at least once or twice a week. Um, and it eventually paid off, but I would stay with Daniel, and I'd sleep on his floor, and I'd wake up in the morning, and just like we did in ministry school, we'd spend some time in prayer. Then he would anoint me with cologne because he said I needed it if I was ever going to have a chance with Kelly. But in those morning times when we would pray, I'd go over and I'd pray in front of his mirror. And he had this mirror and he had written on this mirror, this generation of preachers is responsible for this generation of sinners. And that's a quote from Leonard Ravenhill. And something that, you know, I think there have been times where I was like, that's a little harsh. I don't want to be responsible for you guys. Like, <laughs> that's, that's rough. But the reality of it is, and the heart behind what, what Pastor Ravenhill was saying here, was that it's not a time to diddy-daddle. Dilly-daddle, whatever that word is. Uh, I'm just, dilly-daddle, blah, blah, blah. Dilly-dally, there we go. 
We're Pentecostal here. I'm just speaking in tongues, something like that. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Dear Jesus, help me. There is a great responsibility upon those that teach, upon those that preach, to make sure that what we're preaching is actually the word of God and not just some kind of wasted space. So why is a preacher sharing this with a congregation on a Sunday morning? I recognize that not not all of you will, will kind of sit behind a pulpit someday and fill this platform and you know, preach a message maybe similar to this. Uh, I, I hope that some of you will. hope that some of you would express a call to, to, to ministry in such a capacity, but I know that that's not everybody. Not everyone here will fill a pulpit. That's probably good for some of us. <laughs> but the reality of this is, um, it seems like this might be like a message that would be better geared towards like uh, Bible college graduates or something like that, Right? It's graduation season, and if we're going to give them their credentials and their diplomas and, like, let them go, like, pastor churches or something like that. But you're here listening to a preacher this morning. And so that's important for me <laughs> to know that you're actually invested in what I'm saying. It's important for me to know that you're invested in what I'm saying because preaching actually does affect you. And I really feel like you need to have a strong expectation from me as your pastor. Because if I ever drift from this charge, if I ever drift from what Paul is instructing Timothy here, I would want you to hold me accountable. Because I would rather be called out by you now than stand before God when he comes to judge the living and the dead and find out, man, I was way off base. And so as I'm giving you permission to keep me in check as to make sure, remind me to preach the word, uh, I'm thankful that I've never got uh, an upset message of somebody telling me that I was just way off base. I've always had people tell me that they didn't like what I had to say. (laughs) I've had people confront the style in which I preach or the fact that I stumble over my words or I'm not always overly confident or these things and whatnot, but... If there's one thing that I would love to stay true to is that I could stand and say that I preach this truth, not man's opinion, not what's popular, but what's in this book. You remember the description of the people in Jerusalem in Jeremiah chapter 5, that the people love to have it so. They love to be lied to. They love to be coddled. They love to, to, to be held gently and not have any kind of harsh word of rebuke. I, I pray that that's not you. I pray that you as a church would be willing to take correction and rebuke. That you'd be willing to be um, exhorted and encouraged. The things that we read about here, that you'd respond to the leading of the Lord as he might speak through his word. I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about pastors up here just kind of beating you up or, or trying to make you feel terrible. But as we jump into this series on heresy, as we jump into this series on half-truths and misconceptions um, that run rampant in the church, my charge to you, my, my, my encouragement would come from the place that you would be teachable, that you would be willing to be corrected, that it would be like a righteous man Uh, pouring oil on your head like David would describe it. 
You see, I've been asking people what they would expect of the local church. I've been trying to map out vision uh, for our congregation and, and want to implement some things. And so uh, I asked Adam, you know, I mean, if you were to go pick a new church, what would you be looking for? What are the things that would have to tick the boxes and those things? And one of the questions in conjunction that I've been asking is, what do you expect from your pastor? What do you expect from your pastor? I want you to think about this for a moment because you should have expectation of your pastor. I remember being in, a, I remember being in this kind of Q&A session with a, with a prospective pastor that was going to come to a particular church. And uh, for like, I, I, I don't want to exaggerate here, but it felt like every question was about well, what is your thoughts about doing a flag ministry? And can you do this? And uh, can we do a potluck every third Wednesday? Or, or, or just, I mean, it seems so frivolous. I, I, I honestly think somebody asked something about remodeling the church and like carpeting in this, in this kind of Q&A as they were interviewing the pastor to see if they were going to bring him on. I remember being a young man. I was 17 years old. And I remember being grieved by this. And I was like, why aren't we asking him about his prayer life? Like, why aren't we asking him about his commitment to the study of the word of God and, and, and what he feels like God has compelled him to preach? And um, that was when I found out I wasn't a member of the church and I wasn't allowed to interview the pastor, even though I had been at that church for, uh, anyway, <laughs> lots, of, lots of stories to go down that road. That's not what I'm getting at here. But I want you to know you should have a biblical expectation of me as your pastor, and I want you to hold to that. I don't want you to give me a pass just because you know I'm Pastor Nate and I'm a good guy and I like to go skiing with you or something like that. I would hope that you hold me accountable to a standard that God deems appropriate, not just if you like me or if, you know, I'm a nice guy, because really it boils down to what's in this book, because it's about what God expects. And you shouldn't have to settle for less than that. And this is where, keep going back to Jeremiah chapter 5. I wonder how things might have looked different if there were some God-fearing people within Jerusalem that would, spoke, would have spoken out against the leadership that was corrupt. That would have spoken out against the leadership that was not speaking what God was saying. I would, uh, I would encourage you to hold your leaders to a biblical example. So I want to give you some expectations that you should have of me as your pastor as we jump into teaching on heresy and half-truths. <laughs> the first thing here is what's described is that we'd be preaching the word. If you find yourself as a church anywhere and they're not preaching the Bible or it's more stories and personal feelings than it is scripture, um, get out of there. <laughs> Find a church, I don't care who it is or where it is, but that has the Bible as their primary source of spiritual leadership. I know that uh, Adam and I were talking again about another church that he visited when he was uh, raising support for missions, and uh, it just seemed like everybody had a different thought, and it was very chaotic and very sporadic because everybody was being led by the Spirit. Friends, if you being led by the Spirit isn't actually cultivating a heart for the Word of God, and this isn't taking precedence, I'm not sure which Holy Spirit you're following. Does that make sense? <laughs> uh, his spoken and written Word is of, 
it's important, friends, because Paul was pretty concerned about orthodox doctrine and it being preserved. In fact, that's the majority of the theme of First and Second Timothy. Just in 2 Timothy, just in 2 Timothy alone, there are 36 different distinct references to the true gospel. There are 17 references to false teaching. I'm going to give you just a, a couple of examples here. 2 Timothy 1.8 says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. 2 Timothy 1.13 says, Hold fast to the pattern of sound words. 2 Timothy 2.2, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men. 2 Timothy 2.15, that you might rightly divide the word of truth. Okay, hear me out on this one. It's not enough to just be around spiritual people. It's not enough just to listen to people that talk about the Bible a lot. It's important that they're actually sharing the gospel, that they're sharing scripture in context in appropriate context, that they're rightly dividing the word of truth, that they're not just kind of making something up and adding a spiritual kind of spin on something that they read. Again, I keep using Adam as an example because we've been talking about this a lot, um, but he was in this particular course, in this particular class where a prominent Christian figure, many of you probably have books on your bookshelf written by this person. Um, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a fairly prominent pastor, uh, I'm not, not here trying to like just throw him under the bus or anything, but preaches a message from Scripture where he completely misses the point on what exactly the Scripture was initially written to and added all of these leadership traits and characteristics into this text, particularly talking about the staff of Moses and how it was uh, just very, very interesting. I'm not trying to go down that road. It's not in my notes, but it, it's something like that that I think is, is it evil? Is it 100% wrong? Is it counter-biblical? No, not necessarily, but it's twisting Scripture out of context to get it to say something that the author never intended it to say. I'd be very cautious of listening to anybody that says they have special revelation or insight into what a particular passage says or what it means. Pentecostals are the worst about this, where we so want to be impressed, where we so want to be oohed and awed, that we're looking for the next great revelation, and we're looking for the next great kind of interpretation of a particular passage of Scripture, where we fail to actually just take the text and take the Scripture for what it says. And that's a dangerous way to read the Bible. That's a dangerous way to kind of flesh out your faith. It's important that you and I rightly divide the word of truth. It's important that those that we're listening to as teachers are not just kind of putting their own personality and putting their own kind of spiritual spin onto something that's scripture. Um, oh man, I got to do this. I was going to throw up a picture here. But in Luke chapter 4, <laughs> we see this. Uh, Um, you guys don't, don't turn there because this was a, this was a setup. Okay. This was a joke. I saw one of these, uh, have you guys seen those little calendar, uh, things? There's like a scripture a day. It's like a different promise of God for 365 days a year. You know, teachers have them on their desks. I've seen them. I, I saw this one one time and I, I don't know quite how it probably made it through production, but it had uh, Luke chapter four, uh, verse six, 
where it says, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Some of you are laughing at that. That sounds like a great promise, right? Sign me up for that, right? Except for if you know who says that, it's the devil. <laughs> it's important to take things in context, right? Not just because it's scripture. Oh, that's good. Does that make sense? You guys get my example there? Anyway, I was going to put the picture of it up on the screen, but I, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> but 2 Timothy 2.24, a servant of the Lord must be able to teach. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. There is something here of what Paul is instructing Timothy. He's saying sound doctrine, the word of God, is of far greater importance than any kind of, kind of cool thing you could do to try to grow the church. It's important that as you're ministering, it's important as, as you're doing this Jesus thing, as you're fulfilling the work of your ministry, that you're preaching the word, not your opinion. That you're preaching the word, not trying to rely on the next great growth strategy or event thing that will get people to show up. No, preach the word. And so an expectation that you should have of your pastor is that they are preaching the word, that they're preaching it in context. That they're doing so consistently. Because verse 3 says here, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teacher. Again, this harkens back to Jeremiah chapter 5, what we've kind of been looking at. We see false prophets and corrupt, and corrupt teachers given a platform because the people desire it, because the people love it. And I, I want to be clear that popularity is not a good litmus test for authenticity. Just because a particular teacher is popular, just because a particular teaching is kind of gaining traction, and there might be people that you respect that are behind it, is not a good indicator that it's actually true or that it's worthwhile in listening to. I would encourage you to make sure that what it is is actually founded in these words. Does that make sense? Because it's, I mean, there's going to be popular teachers. This, I mean, this was written 2,000 years ago. There are people that are tw twinding, <laughs> trending on Twitter and on YouTube and TikTok and these platforms that I don't really know a lot about that aren't speaking truth, but the, the majority of people, the majority, a lot of people are agreeing with them. Popularity does not equate authenticity. But it goes on. And it says, but be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of the evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Friends, I have a responsibility as a shepherd, as a pastor, to be watchful. I have a responsibility to know what's going on, to what's being taught, to know what you guys are engaging in, what you actually believe. I am shocked at the number of people that I've had conversations with in the last few months of people in this church that have absolutely bonkers theology that I was grieved for as a pastor. And some and conversations have happened privately, but it really kind of made me think, how can people be in my church and be in my church for a number of years and believe some of these things? 
And uh, so that's where I feel like the Holy Spirit is leading me in addressing uh, some of these things. But to be watchful, to know what's going on, every good shepherd has his eyes open. And he's watching out for threats. He's watching out for things that are wrong. goes on, the charge that Paul gives Timothy here is to endure, endure affliction. That the pastor ought to lead by example. Did you know the average uh, tenure of a pastor in the United States is three years? A youth pastor is anywhere between nine and 18 months. That's... That's crazy. <laughs> and I'm sure with COVID, th those were like statistics I pulled from 2014. I don't know what COVID did to, to that number. But the reality of it is, I know that pastors are quitting at an alarming rate. I'm not here trying to like pat myself on the back or anything like that. But I do believe that there is a biblical command here to endure hardship, to endure affliction, to lead by example. And Paul's not instructing Timothy to do that because he was, like, unwilling to do it, right? Paul led Timothy in that example, and he's telling Timothy, lead your sheep, lead your congregation in that example. This is pretty counter to the prosperity gospel, is it not? That he's just going to bless you and everything's going to go right with you, and your health and your wealth are all going to be touched just because you work and serve for the Lord? We're going to talk about that one. Spoiler alert. Woo! Uh, but goes on, he says, do the work of an evangelist. Even if that was not Timothy's primary calling, if that was not his primary gifting, he still has a call to win souls through the proclamation of the gospel. I have had pastors tell me, you know what, I'm more of a teacher and I'm not really a soul winner. I'm not really a pastor. I'm not really, or I'm a pastor, but I'm not really, you know, that's not my calling. And the reality of it is, I believe uh, Paul here very explicitly charges Timothy to continue on with the work of an evangelist. Those are some practical biblical expectations that I expect you to hold of me. Now, I have uh, just one expectation that I'm going to ask of you today. Is that okay? I have more, but I'm only going to talk about one. I expect you to do a lot of things, but... You guys pretty consistently let me down. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm sharing this. And if I had a passage, if, uh, if I, I, I think I titled this, I did title it. I wrote it up at the top, but was to preach the word. I want that to be the crux of what this church is about, of what we do here. But a lot of this, the thing about deceiving people is that they're deceiving, right? The thing, about false the thing about false teachers is that they're deceptive, right? It's not just that, uh, it's not just that you know, they're bonkers wild and everybody knows that, hey, that guy's crazy. We buy into uh, false doctrine. We buy into false teaching because those that are behind it are pretty good at what they do, pretty good at what they sell. And unfortunately, there are a lot of ministers that are good salespeople. <laughs> there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of ministers that are, there's a lot of ex-ministers that I know right now that are car salesmen. <laughs> That's a little terrifying to me, because uh, I think I could probably be a pretty good car salesman. <laughs> I think, arguably, I am a pretty good car salesman. <laughs> if you look at my track record, uh, wow! Confession time here, Pastor Nate. 
My expectation of you is that you would study the scriptures for yourself. That's why I love what happens in Deeper Project. Because sporadically, Adam or I will teach. But the majority of the teaching that takes place is from everyday people like you. Uh, Joey, man, you're a prime example. I love it when you teach the scripture. God has placed a calling upon your life there, man. Since anybody that has heard you teach scripture... Um, and what are you, dude? You're, you're, you're an average Joe, right? Literally, average Joe. I like it. Uh, I mean, you didn't go to Bible college or anything like that, but you have a passion for God's word. And I love the discussions that come from that place. You, you study it. You seek it. You dig into it. And it reminds me of what, uh, what the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17. Um, and I'm just going to read Acts 17, 11, just the, the last half of this. And this would be something that I would so love for you to be marked by as a congregation. It says that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Right? Because Paul and his ministry team show up to the Jews. They're preaching Jesus. The Bereans' response were, man, we received this, but we're going to study the scriptures to make sure what you're saying is actually true. And I want to give you permission, and I, I want you to know, not just permission, it's my expectation that the things that I say from this pulpit, that you're actively studying and making sure, now, did he make that up, or is that actually in there? Because pastors can be convincing. Preachers can, preachers can get it wrong, too. I have, I have had moments where I have been up here, where I have said things. I look back on some of the sermons I first preached when I started here, a number of years ago and realized, man, that was uh, wrong. That was, not, that was not a good interpretation of the text. <laughs> um, but that's why it's so important, friends, for you to be rooted and grounded in the word. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.